0: There's a lot we could uh, say about this debate that uh, we just don't have uh, time to get into, unfortunately. But for those of you who aren't familiar with this uh, period of economic history, in the 19th century in Britain, there was a heated discussion that spanned several decades between two schools of thought that became known as the currency school and the banking school. Uh, And to some extent, there's also a free banking school, but that's um, not uh, relevant for my paper. But basically, what they debated was how to regulate the Bank of England and other banks of issue so as to mitigate, if not eliminate, financial crises and prevent uh, the inflationary overissue of banknotes. So, what matters for us is that in the process of doing this, they discussed several important problems in monetary theory that appear again and again in the history of thought. Um, so, I'd like to just talk a little bit about uh, some of these problems and how they influenced. Uh, monetary theory just after the turn of the century. Uh, in particular, I'm um, speaking of Mises, so I assume all of you know, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, student of Bombavirk, but also heavily influenced by the Lausanne School, and Rudolf Hilferding, the Austro-Marxist economist. Uh, all three came from similar backgrounds. They were all students in Bombavirk Seminar at the University of Vienna, and they all published important uh, books relating to the currency banking debate In consecutive years, Uh, Hilferding's finance capital appeared in 1910, Schumpeter's theory of economic development in 1911, and Mises' theory of money and credit in 1912. In terms of their relationships to the earlier schools, uh, Mises is essentially a disciple of the currency school. Hilferding is an orthodox banking school theorist within uh, a broader Marxist framework, and Schumpeter is somewhere in between taking little bits and pieces from each school. So we'll begin with uh, Mises and the Currency School. As I said, the doctrines of the Currency School were developed in early 19th century Britain, principally by Lord Overstone, George uh, Norman, and Colonel Robert Torrens. And they built their system around the idea that additional legal restrictions are necessary in addition to convertibility to in- ensure that their co- uh, banks couldn't uh, overissue uh, their notes. Uh, The central doctrine of the currency school uh, became known as the currency principle, which states that the quantity of notes in circulation should be made to adjust in volume exactly as a purely metallic currency would. Or or in other words, there's always a danger of an overissue of banknotes, which should therefore be strictly regulated, so regulated that the notes might become mere tokens for metallic money. Uh, So the idea is that there has to be some sort of restriction on the creation of banknotes to prevent inflationary overissue. Um, and avoid or at least mitigate business cycles. Uh, And by the way, when I say inflationary, I mean it in the uh, the sense that Mises uses inflation in the theory of money and credit. Uh, So, but anyway, so the currency school had several ideas about monetary rules that could be imposed to limit the powers of banks, uh, mostly revolving around some sort of fixed, absolute amount of specie and securities that should be held uh, in reserve by the Bank of England at all times. The, the rule they finally settled on was a, sort of a variation on uh, 100% reserve banking, uh, but it applied only to bank notes and not to bank deposits. Uh, so the currency school writers were also early quantity theorists as opposed to the banking school and Hilferding, we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, the currency school theorists were, as Mises described them, uh, mechanical quantity theorists. That is, they, didn't, they still uh, implicitly believed in uh, the neutrality of money. Uh, The currency school writers, especially Torrens, believed that the overissue of banknotes led to financial crises, but they didn't really have uh, a very clear idea of how business cycles worked. They knew that overissuing banknotes caused rises in prices, uh, changes in the rate of interest, uh, the export of gold, and they knew that financial crises were somehow related to these events, but they they didn't really have a cogent theory of boom and bust. Um, In a way, so they they essentially had the beginning and the end, but uh, not the middle part. Uh, yeah, and uh, especially towards the end of the debate, actually, um, this became a serious problem for them. There was a lot of equiv- equivocation among the currency school uh, about the claims they had made, about the relationship of banks to the business cycle and so on. Um, so it it's, represents a serious theoretical hole in their system. Uh, so in this regard, Mises, of course, makes a great contribution with the theory of money and credit which, appropriately enough, in the original German actually translates to the theory of money and fiduciary media, uh, which, of course, is what the, this debate uh, revolves around. Uh, Mises takes some of these ideas that were used by the currency school and incorporates them to a more comprehensive theory of money and cycles, um, especially, of course, uh, the notions of non-neutrality of money and Fixel's uh, interest rate theory. Um, and, of course, the result is... Uh, Mises' uh, early business cycle theory, you know, which, of course, explains how uh, the divergence of interest rates induces malinvestment and so on and so forth. Um, now, while accepting – Mises did accept uh, much of the currency school's doctrine, he was, but he was fond of pointing out that there were two great errors uh, in the currency school's system. Uh, the first error was to the currency school falsely believed that a central bank was the only method of limiting – uh, the inflationary overissue of notes and the second uh, error was that the currency school didn't realize that uh, banknotes and demand deposits actually perform the same economic function. So this second problem, this distinction between notes and deposits, uh, was corrected by the banking school who realized that notes and, de- uh, and deposits are money substitutes in the same sense and perform the same economic function. But whereas the currency school had supported legal restrictions on uh, note issues, the banking school thought that additional regulations were neither necessary nor desirable. Uh, Their reason for opposing legal restrictions is summed up in the so-called banking principle, which holds that the amount of paper notes in circulation is adequately controlled by the ordinary processes of competitive banking, and if the requirement of convertibility was maintained, could not exceed the needs of business for any appreciable length of time. Uh, This notion of the impossibility of overissue is supported primarily by uh, what became known as the law of reflux, Uh, This notion was invented by John Fullerton, who was a leader of the banking school, and was later adopted by uh, other banking school theorists like Thomas Took and uh, John Stuart Mill. Uh, The law of reflux is the idea that the quantity of money always conforms to the needs of trade, uh, that is, the business demand for money, and thus overissues are impossible because the supply of money substitutes will either expand or contract with the demands of business. So this elasticity is the fundamental characteristic of bank note issue, and there's no, therefore no regulation of the currency uh, is necessary to prevent overissue. Uh, so, yeah, so the, uh, I think the, the principle is relatively straightforward. The idea is that in order to issue loans, somebody has to accept them. So if the demands of business don't require additional credit, any notes printed in excess of demand will simply flow back to the bank. So there can't be any inflationary issue of bank credit. And it's, it's not that the banks don't inflate. It's that they can, even if they try their little hearts out. Uh, now, obviously, there are a lot of problems with this. But the main one I'll mention is that this implies that the demand for money is somehow independent of the bank's policies. I mean, of course, it's the case that businessmen have to be willing to borrow from banks in order for the banks to be able to lend. But obviously, the banks lending policies uh are seriously going to affect the man's business through interest rates so um, but this brings us to Hilferding who picks up on this banking school position and adopts it really without any changes uh actually uh, Hilferding was following Marx on this um, they had both uh accepted much of the many of the doctrines of the banking school uh, I think Marx just somewhere describes Hilferding as one of the best bourgeois economists uh Now, of course, Hilfering and Marx um, had also both denied the quantity theory of money and accepted the banking school's belief that the quantity of money is determined endogenously by business demand. Um, So it's not really, I suppose, surprising that they would have uh, denied the quantity theory and picked up on this banking school doctrine, which is uh, much more compatible with the labor theory of value. Uh, so, uh banking school theorists had also denied that monetary factors influence business cycles, holding that crises emerge in the uh so-called real economy. Uh, Hilferding agreed and attributes crises to either supply or demand shocks, which in the Marxist vocabulary means that because of problems inherent in the uh, anarchy of capitalist production, discrepancies tend to appear between the production of producers' goods and consumers' goods. Um but interestingly, Hilferding takes this faulty starting point and lays out a sort of overinvestment overinvestment theory of business cycles that emphasizes the heterogeneity of capital and the intertemporal misallocation of capital. Uh, and he actually reaches, uh, reaches some conclusions that are very similar to, uh, to Mises, but, uh, but especially uh, the younger Hayek. Um, but his whole outlook on the process of the cycle is, is uh, completely different from Mises and uh, very much flawed. Um, in fact, uh, Hilferding reviewed the theory of money and credit when it came out, uh, actually, his review was really just three or four pages of diatribe against uh Bavark bawerk and Wieser and the marginal utility theory. But um, at the end, he sneaks some paragraphs in where he criticizes Mises for accepting the currency school's doctrine um, and uh, and denying um, and accepting the, the quantity theory of money and denying that um, uh, that uh, banks exercise any real control over uh, the, money, the money supply or interest rates, and Hilferding just denies this um, without really explaining why. Um, but it's actually, Hilferding's not all bad. Um, in finance capital, he actually does have some intriguing things to say about how banking institutions affect the rest of the economy. <coughs> uh, he talks quite a bit about how the banks, by issuing credit to businesses and combining banking capital with industrial capital, encourage the dependence of business on the banks and gradually, the banks consolidate a sort of monopoly position for themselves and for their favored firms. And uh, this is actually, this idea is how Hilferding avoids Marx's traditional problem of explaining how under capitalism business cycles would become more frequent and more severe, leading eventually to you know, the collapse of the system and the replacement by socialism. Um, Hilferding says, well, it's... Uh, all that, uh, since the banks are constantly consolidating their position, all that we need to do is just wait it out for a little while until the banks control essentially everything, and then we can just have the state take over the banks, and there, and we'll get uh, the end of capitalism and the rise of socialism through a sort of bloodless uh, revolution in the banking sector. So that's intriguing. Um, I, interestingly, Schumpeter actually criticized Hilferding on this later on in the history of economic analysis. Uh, But as I say, the the lady doth protest too much, methinks, because Schumpeter had said some very similar things uh, a few years earlier in capitalism, socialism, and democracy. Uh, But that's just a side point. Uh, But on to Schumpeter. um, As usual, his position is the most difficult to pin down in terms of affiliation with one school or another. He occupies kind of a middle ground between the currency and banking schools. But if you're familiar with Schumpeter's book, The Theory of Economic Development, you know that he builds a theory of the static economy and then uses the idea of the entrepreneur to explain how innovations disturb the static equilibrium uh, and shift the entire economy to a new uh, equilibrium point. Uh, This is important because in Schumpeter's schema, the only way to stimulate economic change is for the banks to create new credit that the entrepreneurs can use to finance their uh, innovations. Uh, and the reason this is relevant is because since entrepreneurs can only produce uh, in the future, this is lagged between the introduction of new credit and the introduction of uh, the new goods that the entrepreneurs produce. So this is one difference between Schumpeter and the banking school, because whereas Fullerton and Took and the other banking school theorists uh, held that the quantity of money is determined endogenously, uh, through the, uh, Schumpeter is emphasizing the role of banks in creating exogenous uh, creating money exogenously. And uh, he actually says that the only real purpose of banks is to create credit for the entrepreneurs. So in this sense of uh, exogenous money, he's closer, I think, to the currency school. But then uh, on the other hand, he's uh, close to the banking school because he does see banks as expanding credit only in relation to the needs of business. Uh, And in this this case, the, the needs of the entrepreneurs. But uh, then he clearly supports the idea of the quantity of money affecting prices uh, independently, which the banking school emphatically denied because the banking school denied uh, all forms of uh, the quantity theory. Uh, and then, again, on the other hand, uh, the currency school would argue that Schumpeter's innovative bank credit creation is inflationary, whereas Schumpeter develops a rationale for why that's not necessarily the case. Uh, he claims that the whole operation from credit creation ultimately up through the entrepreneur's new production can be either inflationary or deflationary, depending on the circumstances. Uh, but he doesn't really take a clear stance. Uh, although, uh, on this argument, he is more convincing than the, the simple reflux explanation that the banking school used. Uh, he also improves on the banking school in some ways, because he does actually admit that uh, expanding the supply of credit will at least in the short run, before the introduction of new goods, be inflationary, which is something, again, that the, the banking school... Uh, were denied because of this idea of the, the reflux. Uh, and uh, the banks well, uh, denied this because they didn't take into account uh, the length of uh, time that it would take for the reflux to work. Uh, it, uh, it's obviously not instantaneous, so even if it was the case that uh, this reflux operates all the time, uh, there's still a lag between uh, the time when the new money goes out and when it uh, is uh, redundant and returns to the bank. So, um, and then finally, the last thing I mentioned is that Schumpeter's innovation-based theory of the business cycle uh, is very similar to Hilferding's in the sense that both cycles uh, begin with uh, radical changes in the economy. In Schumpeter's case, the entrepreneur, not a simple demand or supply shock or something like this. But... uh, and so, in this regard, again, it's a real theory of the business cycle, which is much more is much closer to the banking school as opposed to monetary explanations of the currency school. So, uh, yeah. So, I suppose that was a little bit, to, quite a bit, to get through in just a few minutes. But I hope I've laid out some of the simpler, basic connections between these uh, two periods, these two debates uh, in the history of thought. Um, I'd just like to conclude by saying that there is actually some current relevance to this. It's not just a uh, uh, a bland exercise in the history of economic thought. Uh, the central issue that came out of the currency banking debate, this question about whether or not we need special legal restrictions on banknotes or, or on bank issues uh, in general, is also at the center of the debate between the 100% reserve-free bankers and the fractional reserve-free bankers. Now, I, I realize that that debate is so 1988, but it is actually important um, and uh, even though the dispute has taken many twists and turns through ethical and juridical arguments over the years, uh, I, I just wanted to uh, emphasize the importance of the strictly economic arguments, and at the core of uh, this dispute is uh, this is the same issue that was being discussed by the, uh, the currency and banking schools. Uh, and in my opinion, a uh, fruitful continuation of this discussion should revolve around investigating uh, this economic question further. So, thank you.